0: Uh, so I'm driving home uh, last Wednesday evening, and actually, actually it was probably Thursday. I'm driving home the next day, and I and I say to myself, "Derek, you idiot! You're not even you're not even there next Wednesday." And uh, so we thought we'd try to Skype uh, these uh, these questions, and I have a bunch of them uh, here. Uh, some of them were handed to me last week, and some of them have come uh, via. Uh, email and uh, let me let me dive in. Uh, Dave Massey, I don't see him there, but he may be, he may be to my left, to your right. Dave Massey, I see you. Um, seeing post millennialists view things as getting better before Christ's return, second coming. How does our current world condition reflect this position? You know that's a that's a really good question and um, I I've, I've been trying to uh give premillennialism and uh, millennialism and post uh, a a fair a fair shake uh, over the last few weeks uh, you, you know I'm I'm a kind of diehard amillennialist and and have been and um, but uh, let, me, let me try and put myself in a post-millennialist's shoes here. And a post-millennialist views uh, the second coming as, as being after the millennium. In other words, the millennium is before the second coming. And, and a post-millennialist uh, views that millennium of Revelation 20, that thousand years, as um, a period of blessing— um may or may not be literally a thousand years, but a period of blessing that falls right at the end uh, before uh, the second coming uh, of of our Lord and and views that period as one in which uh, there will be um, a, a worldwide uh, blessing, uh, perhaps a worldwide revival, perhaps. Uh, depending on which you read, um, that generation or two uh, before Jesus comes uh, will uh, know um, a, just an extraordinary uh, blessing. And and how is that compatible uh, with, um, I guess David Massey's question is, how is that comp- uh, compatible with um, evil uh, that's... Uh, in the world today, and I, I think that a post millennialist would would look at today. Uh, and I'm trying to put myself in the shoes say, of someone like uh, Ken Gentry, uh, who you can look up online. Uh, he was a classmate of mine at seminary uh, in the mid '70s, and is is one of the leading spokesmen on behalf of post millennialism today. and And he would say that those signs, uh, like Antichrist, uh, the man of lawlessness, uh, the battle of Armageddon, uh, all of those signs um, that that, uh, the Bible speaks of are signs that were fulfilled uh, in uh, the constellation of events that took place in the late 60s of the first century uh, with the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. So they don't they don't look for um, signs of, of war and, and bad things um, to happen before the second coming. So if those things are happening now, uh, I think a post-millennialist would simply say the millennium hasn't yet begun. Uh, and it's still somewhere in the future uh, when there will be um, a world... Wide um, spread of the gospel and and um, a, a time a golden age uh, before Jesus comes. So I think that's how a post millennialist would answer that. Now, uh, and there's another question like this, uh, which we'll return to a little later, which uh, addresses uh, s- some of the same issues. But uh, let me let me take one more question. Uh, that I've been given, and then I'll, I'll let you um, ask a question from the floor, see if, see if that works. And I see Ralph Davis um, there right in the center of my picture. Uh, I'm, I may ask him, so, Neil, if you've got the microphone, just, just be ready to hand it to him, because uh, this is a question that actually came from someone online. Uh, Alan and Karen Jones asked this question. And uh, it's from, uh, it's referencing um, Isaiah 65, uh, the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, of course, has 66 chapters. So these are, this is a reference to the final two chapters in Isaiah, and especially uh, a, a section in Isaiah beginning to verse and pick it up, uh, and it's Isaiah that speaks up, um, this is a section of Isaiah, uh, chapter 65 and uh, verse 17, perhaps perhaps as far as the end of chapter 65 but certainly to verse 23 or so let me let me read a few of those verses put it in some kind of context and remember that Isaiah is the one who speaks of the new heavens and the new earth and that little phrase occurs both in chapter 65 and in chapter 66 and is picked up i think uh, in the new testament and peter for example is one who picks up that phrase no more shall be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses, inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. They shall not build, and another inhabit. They shall not plant, and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work, and so on. And I think the question is, if if what, is, what does this refer to, and how does it, uh, the question was, how does this relate to the millennium of Revelation 20, and especially verse 20, no more shall be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And um, this is a well-known passage. um, uh, Dispensationalists, and uh, let me pick out a name like um, Dwight Pentecost. Uh, Dispensationalists see this passage as a reference to the time of the millennium, and the time of the millennium for a dispensationalist is after uh, the second coming. So Jesus comes, and during that thousand years, uh, this will be true of uh, Jerusalem um, in that period of the millennium. Uh, Post-millennialists interpret this passage as uh, depicting the latter day glory, the golden age before Jesus comes, so on the other side, on the front side of the second coming. uh, And uh, somebody like um, Jefferson Davis I think uh, would be a a typical um, post-millennial interpretation of this passage. Uh, It's a difficult passage for a postmillennialist because it seems to be saying that during that golden age there will be such uh, not just spiritual blessing but moral and physical blessing that well it appears as though disease may seem to disappear because the, the, the young will now die a hundred years old so there won't be infant mortality during that golden age um some post might want to interpret that just a little bit more, um, less literally and, and more f- figuratively, perhaps. Um, I, I think that the way to see Isaiah 65 and 66, and this is where I want Dr. Davis to, to add his uh, uh, six pennies worth of interpretation here. Um, I I have been impressed by Alec Motier's uh, understanding of these last two chapters as being a chiasm. Uh, that's a technical um, word. Uh, uh, the way in which Hebrew poetry and prophecy sometimes um, acts like bookends, so you'll have you'll have the same thing at the beginning and the end. And the most important part being right in the middle. Uh, I'm simplifying now. Um, But Isaiah 65 and 66 being bookended and the beginning of Isaiah 65 and the ending of Isaiah 66 saying almost the same thing. And right in the middle, the passage that we are looking at now uh, being the most important part uh, about Jerusalem. And, And I think... As an amillennialist I would interpret this passage as one of those one of those passages where you have to decide how how literal do you want to interpret Old Testament prophecy and for me at, at this point the prophet is using language in a in a in a symbolic way is using language in a figurative way figurative way, um, accommodating the idea of how would we see blessing? And we would see blessing in terms of long life and, and perhaps prosperity. So to interpret the new heavens and the new earth, what, what, what is it going to be like? Well, it's going to be like living in a city where there is no more disease, um in a figurative way so obviously in the new heavens and new earth, there won't be death so so when it says the young man will live to a hundred it's 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 like poetry it's like figurative language for um the restoration of longevity of of years and and I think that's that's often the issue say between our millennialists and post millennialists how do you how literally do you want to interpret the metaphors and the similes um, that prophets are employing? Uh, and and here I would see this as poetic, figurative language for the kind of restored blessing uh, that would be part and parcel of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, Dr. Dears, do you want to say something about... I know you've given a lot of thought to uh, Isaiah 65, uh, but answer that question about, about the use of prophecy in the Old Testament and how, you know, some, some are going to interpret it a little bit more literally and some are going to interpret it a little, a little bit more figuratively. And, you, you know, you have to make a choice here. And, and perhaps we might make different choices
1: uh, i don 't think I have too much to say about this derek because i don 't remember how I took it the last time I went through it, um, and so i 'm um, rusty on it i think I think the rub is i don 't i would I would be loath in this case to take our, these verses of isaiah sixty five uh, as as being characteristic of a millennium because uh, you have a conundrum here in in verse seventeen he speaks of new heavens and a new earth, so it seems to me that relates more to revelation twenty one and twenty two and yet you have these descriptions of an infant. Um, or an old man who does not fill out his, uh, that, that will live his, ext- his extended days, and a young man will die at 100 years old, and you wonder how do you compute that with the new heavens and the new earth. So I do, I think there is a, a matter in which you have to make a decision in every passage about about that uh, imagery. And in this one, I, I think the main thing that you see in, say, verses 20 to 22 there. In Isaiah 65, well, even further than that, is that it's talking about there's going to be no futility or frustration. Everything will be as it ought to be. Uh, uh, There won't be this, uh, the covenant curses, for instance, in Deuteronomy 28, a part of them were a, had an element of frustration or futility. You'll build a house and someone else will live in it. You'll marry a wife and someone else will have relations with her and, and things won't be as they ought to be. And that's part of God's judgment for unfaithfulness. And and here he's saying that, that kind of thing's reversed. Uh, there isn't that futility. But how to put the imagery together with the new heavens and the new earth, uh, it, it, does it go beyond something the the figurative element, I'm I'm not sure in this passage, and so I'm I'm still working on that, and and I know I went through it when I taught through the through Isaiah the last time, but I don't remember what I said about it. So there you go.
0: <laughs> thank you, thank you, Dr. Davis. Now, Neil, let me see if there's a question uh, from the folks there.
2: Dr. Thomas, I want to thank you for all the good information you've given us over this, the course of uh, the different views, and I thank you for the fairness that you uh, sought to put into the uh, the um, treatment of the different views. I think at the end, I'm more of a pan-millennialist at this time, and um, it'll all pan out in the end. No, that's just a joke. I, I do appreciate the the information. My question is this, more of a practical end. And, and uh, if you could give us one or two or three um, ideas or takeaways from dealing with end-time views, how can it be practical in our lives? What do we need to look at to take away and to make our lives more fulfilled because of this information, even though we may have different views, what are some things that could be good practical takeaways? That's all.
0: Uh, Thank you. Actually, I I heard the question uh, perfectly, Neil. Um, It's a really good question. Uh, And I appreciate the joke about about the... It'll all pan out in the end. Although I would say, after hearing that a hundred times, I, I then beget I, I then become a little suspicious that we view uh, the Bible's teaching about the end with a, a little bit of of not cynicism, but we can we can give it less attention. Than any other part of scripture, and I, I'm I'm not willing to go there. And I believe where the Bible is clear, you know, we need to be clear. Where the Bible is less clear, we need some charity. And and I'm, I'm uh, that's what I've been trying to convey over the last few weeks. I I, I would say this. You know, when, when there's an event in the future, um, like like summer holidays, hands up those of you who have plans for and are looking forward to summer vacation. Well, there's only one honest person in the entire room. Um, you know, when, when you have something in the future that you planned, that you look forward to, uh, that involves making certain commitments on your part um, you then begin to live y- your life the next few weeks and months in light of the fact that there's an event in the future and I think that one of the things that eschatology uh, says to us is that that this world as we know it is going to end that history is linear and um, we may or we may not be part of that final generation before Jesus arrives. So we may have died before Jesus arrives, or or we may be uh, in that generation that may still be alive when Jesus comes. In in either way, um, I I think that has a lot to say about how we live our lives. Um, Not just with the advent of Death. I mean, the, the Puritans used to say, you know, you should live your life with your bags packed and ready to go, because it is appointed a man wants to die, and after death, the judgment. And that provides a degree of sobriety, yes. I think, about how you live your life. But not just, not just death. What is, what is the goal for which we live, and not, and, that, and it's not just. Dying and being with Jesus. Actually, the Bible doesn't give a great deal of stress on that part. the The next great redemptive event in Scripture is, I think, the Second Coming, and and therefore the Second Coming, uh, which is the the, the final visible um, corroborative uh, evidence of Christ's. Triumph and of our triune God's triumph over sin, death, and hell should have a very practical effect on how we live our lives. Um, whether or not we look forward to a golden age as postmillennialists do, or, or whether or not we we um, we expect a sudden and and um any moment view of Jesus' coming. I personally I personally don't view Jesus' second coming as an any moment, only because I think there are certain things that must first happen before Jesus comes. So Antichrist, Man of Lawlessness, Battle of Armageddon however you interpret those those are those are things that must first take place before Jesus comes if you're a, if you're a premillennial um i guess then that's not the case and and the second coming of Jesus can be at any moment but either way i think it was alan stibbs but i can't be sure about this but i think it was alan stibbs who said that we should all of us live our lives as though we could be that generation that sees the second coming of Jesus. Now, I, I, don't, know how, I don't know how often you think about that. You know, we, we probably, most of us, only think about the fact that we're going to die. But it's possible, and if you believe the Bible, it's possible that we might be among that generation that won't die that will still be alive when Jesus comes, and that's a that's a wonderful thought. Um, that should have a practical effect on, on on how we live our lives. That that the future is is before us. That that it is certain in some aspects of it, um, and therefore should help us. I think uh, discern. Um what sort of things we should live for uh, from a day to day basis? Uh, so I don't view eschatology as um something indifferent. um the second coming of Jesus is is as about as clear a doctrine in the Bible as any doctrine. It is among, I think the ABC's. Of Scripture, and I think that giving uh, giving thought to credence to um, the second coming of Jesus is one of those things that that we ought to do as uh, as Christians well let me let me pick up another question uh, one that was given to me uh, can you clarify what those who died before Christ's incarnation saw? in heaven, since God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. Jesus was not yet incarnate and did not yet have his glorified body. Now, this is a very specific question. Um, It's asking about those who died during the Old Testament period, before Jesus came. What did they... What did they see in heaven, since Jesus wasn't yet incarnate? And the question assumes that we cannot see God, right, Which the Bible says, um, God is a spirit, and we cannot we cannot see God. He has no physical form. So all that we can see is the incarnate body of the Lord Jesus. So what did Old Testament saints see? Well, let me open the question up a little bit. Um, You know, medieval theologians, um, and these would be Roman Catholic theologians, uh, divided, um, and, and let me use the general term, uh, Hades here divided Hades into uh, four different parts. Uh, there was what they called the Hell of the Damned. Then there was Purgatory. Then there was the, the Limbus Patrum, uh, or the, the the realm of the Fathers and, and, and Old Testament saints. And then fourthly, and this was not an official and still isn't an official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, but there was the limbus infantum, um, what happened to babies who died in infancy who weren't baptized. And for Roman Catholics, that was a specific issue and, and, frankly, a specific problem for which there was created this realm called the limbus infantum. Let me back away from that part of it and and pick up the limbus patrum um, idea that there was there was such an, um, an an issue for those who died before Jesus came. How could their sins be forgiven? And um, I think that uh, without conceding. Uh, without conceding anything at all here to R- Roman Catholicism um, add to that the notion that the descent into hell clause in the in the in the um Apostles Creed he descended into hell was interpreted as Jesus after he died went into Limbus Patrum, among other places, but went into hell. Uh, the, the so-called harrowing of hell uh, to retrieve those who are in a, a kind of state of limbo. Now, I, I don't believe any of that. Um, uh, that, that but, but that that baggage has become part of. Um, the sort of confused understanding that people have about, for example, what happened to Old Testament saints. And, and I, think, I think that Old Testament saints, first of all, were saved in exactly the same way that you and I are saved, by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Now, for Old Testament saints, that Jesus that they believed in was a Jesus of promise, a Jesus that was still in the future was a Jesus of type that was foreshadowed in Levitical sacrifices and messianic prophecies of the Old Testament but essentially and this is where premillennialists and postmillennialists and nowmillennialists would differ with say dispensationalists, in that we believe that Old Testament saints would be saved in exactly the same way as New Testament saints, the same way as you and I are. So what did they see? And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that they saw anything except, um, except now perhaps uh, a, a perfect understanding of the design and purposes of God in the Incarnation. And therefore, along with angels and archangels, when Bethlehem occurred, um, among the gasp of astonishment and, and wonder was not only the, the the songs of angels and archangels, but but also, I think, in heaven, um, the gasp of Old Testament saints uh, that at last the promise of God had been fulfilled. Um, now, um, the question uh, the question could be elaborated a little, but let me ask another question here: uh, What? do the scriptures say about what happens to the unbeliever who dies before Christ's return? So this is uh, another question, and it's asking uh, not about Old Testament saints, but about about New Testament saints, and about, about uh, in particular now, what, what do the scriptures say about those who are not saints, those who are unbelievers who die before Christ's return? And the Bible has, the New Testament has several passages that directly uh, impinge on that question. Uh, one would be the parable of um, the rich man and uh, Lazarus, babies and Lazarus in Luke 16. And you remember uh, the parable says, uh, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And sees um, Abraham afar off, and Lazarus at his bosom, and he cried, "Remember to Abraham, uh, that to have mercy on him, and to send uh, Lazarus, that he may dip his finger in water and and uh, and cool his tongue, for I am tormented in this flame." Um, you have Jude chapter six. Um, and a reference to angels, uh, kept in chains, uh, under darkness until the judgment of the great day. Uh, you have the very difficult passage in 1 Peter 3, uh, where, um, where Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. And there are multiple interpretations of that passage, but the important point here is that the, the spirits are in prison. So, so where are unbelievers? Um, and um, our, our confession of faith has something to say about this, too, as it, as it references these passages and some others in the New Testament, um, that they are in hell. They're not in that final hell uh, that follows the great day of judgment and the resurrection and the reunification of soul and body, but their but their souls are in torment. In a place where evangelism is not possible, I, I don't believe the Bible teaches postmortem evangelism, uh, a second chance, a, a kind of well the technical word would be conditionalism um so that that state is a conscious state just as saints are conscious of being in heaven in a bodiless existence and, and i'm not sure i understand what that means um, but similarly uh, the un- the unbeliever is in a bodiless existence but in but in hell and awaiting unconsciously so and seemingly, well, from Luke 16, seemingly aware of um, what is still going on uh, on earth. Um, Now, the Bible doesn't fill that out for us, but there's enough there to warn, to exhort, to um, understand that, The time is short, but now is the appointed time to believe. And to believe the gospel and to believe in Jesus Christ means that I I need never fear hell um, at all. Neil, is there another question coming from the floor?
2: Here comes Trevor.
1: Uh, Dr. Thomas, thank you for doing this uh, series. It, it's really helped me um, try to put myself on that millennial scale. Um, and before this series, I, I assume there was the premillennialist, postmillennialist, and amillennialist. But I believe that um, at least one of the lectures you mentioned um, maybe an optimistic amillennialist and a pessimistic, and I I could be making that up, but if you could, if you did in fact mention that, could you comment a little more on what those two types of amillennialists are?
0: Yes. Uh, Thank thank you for a great question, a wonderful question. Um, In analyses, and um, I I read an article this afternoon uh, by Ken Gentry, Uh, as a post-millennialist, for example, and I noticed that the article had a fairly liberal smattering of uh, words like pessimistic and optimistic, Um, and I think one was supposed to get the sense of optimistic was good and pessimistic was bad, Uh, that that would be uh, that would be how a post millennialist would often in, interpret things, for sure. I, I I'm personally a, a kind of die hard arm but I remain, and I and I do believe, I do believe that Antichrist, whilst it is current in John's time, right in First John two, I think eighteen, John says. Uh, that Antichrist is already in the world. But I, I, I never departed from Paul's man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians 2. I remember reading uh, a late article by Simon Kistenacher uh, back in 1977, perhaps, or 78. Um, I, it convinced me then, and it convinces me still, that the man of lawlessness is a personal future figure um, akin to John's Antichrist uh, one and the same and so I, I see I see bad things in the future I, 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 I read Revelation 20 and I sense, that once Satan is released for a little while, bad things will happen. And, and the battle of Armageddon, Ogog and Magog, of Ezekiel. So, so there's, there's bad stuff in the future. I would differ from a premillennialist who sees that bad stuff after sec, after the second coming. I, I see it before the second coming, but still there's bad things in the future. Um, but I also believe I also believe in, in revival, uh, Dr. Davis was mentioning uh, some revivals that occurred uh, in Scotland in recent sermons. Um, I, have, I have spoken to um, men who lived in the Isle of Lewis, for example, in the 1950s, where almost the entire island was converted in the space of a couple of years. Uh, it was hard to find anybody on the whole island. We're talking of s- several thousand people. Um, and what happened at the Reformation or what happened in the seventeen late 1730s, 1740s, or what happened in the middle of the 19th century or what happened in Wales in 1904, um, I, I firmly believe that that can happen again in, in answer to prayer. So whilst I'm an amillennialist, I still see periods of, Extraordinary blessing, and, and you know, one one looks at what's happened in China uh, in the last thirty or forty years, and and some reports suggest that there are four, five, some suggest even more million Christians in China, and um, that's an extraordinary blessing. Um, you know, we tend to view things. Uh, we tend to view things from a very myopic North American, South Carolinian, Colombian focus, where where things might be retreating, you know, and and we look back and we say, oh, it wasn't like that in my day. Um, but if you lived, you know, if you lived somewhere else, if you lived in, uh, if you lived in certain parts of the world. Uh, the, the gospel has spread and grown and churches have been planted. Uh, I've just been speaking to somebody who's returned from India uh, in connection with the seminary that I teach in, but, uh, but uh, extraordinary things are happening in India um, where uh, there are churches of fifteen or 20,000 people and they are subscribing to the Westminster Confession without reservation this is this is extraordinary so um yes yeah, so an optimistic amil but i'm not a, i can't make that final step into post-millennialism um i don't believe that all of the bad things happened in AD 70 i still think that there are some really bad things that will happen in and around the second coming so uh, I, I'm an optimistic, and I'm, I'm a Celt, so I'm given to pessimism. But, but on most days, I'm a, an optimistic uh, Amil. But in a sense, every single one of you, every single one of you has reason to be optimistic, whether it's about this world or whether it's about the world to come. We're all optimistic that the promises of God will be fulfilled. We're all optimistic about the new heavens and the new earth. We're all optimistic about the resurrection of the body. We're all optimistic about, none shall be able to pluck them from my father's hand. Uh, and, and in that, we are all agreed. Now I notice it's time to quit. Enjoy the rest of your evening. My wife and I are out to dinner. But let, let's, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that we can do this electronically, uh, that we live in such an age. Thank you for uh, our studies together in uh, eschatology and end time matters. We rejoice in the very depths of our hearts at the certainty that we can have that Jesus has triumphed over death and sin and the grave and Satan and that he will come again in power and in glory, and that we shall inherit and live in forever, the new heavens and the new earth in resurrection bodies. And uh, with these things in our minds and hearts, grant us that, that courage and optimism and faithfulness to live before you as pilgrims.